0: Welcome to The Final Word, a Bible teaching ministry with pastor, teacher, and author Jim Andrews. The Final Word is grounded on the invincible conviction that what the Bible teaches, God teaches. And that is the last word. On this program, truth still matters. The Bible is in, Babel is out. The Final Word is funded by listeners like you. Should you want to partner with us or want other information about the program, please go to our website at thefinalwordradio.com. There you'll find archives so you can listen to any program you may have missed. Visit us on our social media platforms at The Final Word Radio and write us a note. We love hearing from our listeners. We'll provide other contact information at the end of the program, so have your pen ready. And now Jim Andrews continues his current study of God's Word.
1: Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us again on The Final Word. Before I launch today's exposition, I want to make our listening audience aware of some articles that I have written and tell you how to access them. If you will go to jimandrewsbooks.com, that's one word, jimandrewsbooks.com, you will find there information describing the books I have authored, one of them co-authored with my daughter. On top of that, on the same website, you'll see a tab that says Articles. You will discover there are some articles that I've produced over the years that you may find interesting and helpful. For example, my take on the demise of the culture wars and where I think we ought to go from here. Another article that appeared several years ago in a journal for biblical manhood and womanhood is entitled Boundaries Without Bonds. Another is a rebuttal of a tract that appeared several years back, the author attempted cleverly, but as I will show unsuccessfully, to persuade us that the scriptures do not condemn homosexual practice after all. That has all been a misunderstanding. I'm not a regular blogger, but when sometimes things pop up on my radar that I feel I would like to address in a thoughtful way, I will sometimes produce a longer article like some of these. So I'm just happy to share them with you for whatever benefit they may have. Now, Back to our current study, we continue our exposition of the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 9, the last part, heading into chapter 10. The author in verses 19 through 20, for the record, recalls the particulars of the inauguration of the first covenant. Bear in mind, if you've been following with us, that he's trying to stress to these Hebrew Christians whose faith is a little wobbly, that to go back to the first covenant would be a fatal step. It would be a calamitous retreat into apostasy, that everything that we have in Jesus Christ is superior. That's going back to the old covenant. Jesus Christ has brought us the new covenant. It's a better covenant with better promises because it has a better Savior and it has a better offering for our sins. In verses 19 through 20, He recalls, as I say, the particulars of the historical inauguration of the Old Covenant. The key point in that passage is simply that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Which is to say that without a substitutionary death that atones for sin, there can be no forgiveness of sin, Old Covenant, New Covenant, whatever. That's because a just God cannot wink at human defilement and say, Okay, let's just pretend it doesn't exist. Our God, our loving God, is also the two go hand in hand, perfectly just. The wages of sin is death, Romans six twenty three. That penalty must be paid. It will be paid. Either you and I, the transgressors, pay the debt by our own death, or a perfect, undefiled substitute must be found who will pay it for us. That substitute cannot be the blood of bulls and goats. They're only symbolic. They can never take away the defilement of sin. That substitute is Christ. He came and died in our place. And that's the only way there can be a new covenant to replace the old. He and he alone can be our mediator and save us to the uttermost because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, lives in the presence of the Father as the one all-sufficient offering for our sins and defilement. Therefore, he says, meaning because without an atoning sacrifice there's no remission of sins, it was necessary for the copies, the earthly templates under the Old Covenant, the earthly templates of things or realities in the heavens to be cleansed or purified with better sacrifices than these, referring to the sacrificial blood of animals, for Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands. A mere copy of the true one, but he entered into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God for us. Let's explain it now this way. Let's say my home is spick and span. Every facility is as clean as a hospital operating room. However, let's imagine that on a certain occasion I take in some street folk who don't know the first thing about hygiene or cleanliness. They do in the kitchen what should be done only in the bathroom and in the bathroom what should not be done anywhere. Now, my home is fine. It's in perfect order. But with them and their habits present, it's defiled. After they leave, I will have to fumigate it, disinfect it, and wash every article and utensil in the place. The problem is not the home. It's the visitors. Well, were we to come into the presence of God in our natural defilement, we would pollute heaven itself. The blood of bulls and ghosts won't get it. That is where the correspondence between the symbolic ceremonial cleansing of the earthly sanctuary and the application of the atoning blood of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary shows up. As William Lane says, our sin has been put aside by His purifying blood. Our sin can never again accuse or defile. Hence, our native corruption can now enter into the presence of God without defiling the heavenly sanctuary. That's because in the sight of God, legally speaking, our sin and our defilement is disposed of under the cleansing blood of Christ. His cleansing blood is, as it were, sprinkled all over heaven and upon us. It's impossible for us to defile the true holy of holies in heaven where Christ entered for us, entered with a better sacrifice than those sacrifices offered under the old covenant. They could only atone provisionally until the time of the true sacrifice was eventually made in behalf of those who trusted in God. Why would anyone who understands this ever give the slightest thought, our author is saying, to retreating from their hope in Christ back into the shelter of the failed old covenant and its woefully inadequate redemptive provisions, as some of them were tempted to do? The only track to eternal redemption, he emphasizes it in Christ Jesus, Get on that track and stay there. But that's not the only way Christ, our mediator, is superior to the high priest of the tribe of Levi. Verse 25, he doesn't have to keep offering himself for our sins as they had to offer annual sacrifices for sins of themselves and the people. Nor was it that he entered heaven that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the earthly holy place year after year with blood not his own. Had Christ's precious sacrifice been of lesser than immeasurable atoning value, Christ would have needed, verse 26, to suffer often repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation, once, once he has been manifested, and once for all he's put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Why does the author say, had it been otherwise, Christ would have to start sacrificing himself again and again since the foundation of the world? Well, because since the threshold of human history when Adam sinned, man is needed an atonement, man has needed a Savior. Yet God would bide his time in sending a Redeemer. For one was standing in the wings, whose self-sacrifice was blood of an infinite atoning value. That blood could be applied retroactively to all those whom the Lord received by faith in times past. You see, their ceremonial atonement, Based on animal sacrifice was merely provisional. It was merely instructive or pedagogical. But they too were saved by the retroactive application of the blood of Christ. I like to say they were saved on credit, as it were. And there's a certain poetic fitness to his once-for-all sacrifice, our author notes in verse 27. It's appointed for man to die once and then to go face the judgment of Christ. So it is that Christ himself, as a man like us, died once for our sins. Before moving into chapter 10, which is a continuation of this argument about the utter necessity of the atoning work of Christ on our behalf, we should here take note of a warning or a caveat of F.F. Bruce. Some conceive of the mediatorial, the mediation work of Christ in heaven, as if Christ were in heaven eternally offering himself, almost like one of those dream states where we keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, all night without end, like counting sheep. Those who entertain that conception of the heavenly reality tend to view the Eucharist, as it's called in liturgical churches, we call it the Lord's Table. They continue to view it as a repeated reenactment on earth of what Christ is doing in heaven. But as Bruce notes, that version of reality is discordant with what is written here so plainly. Friends, Christ appeared in heaven. He offered himself for our sins once for all. It doesn't need to be repeated on earth, and it certainly doesn't need to be repeated or augmented by himself in heaven. You can dismiss any notion of the cup of the Eucharist, which is supposedly becoming again and again the sacrificial blood of Christ, which they think keeps us up to date and virus free in terms of atonement. That notion cheapens the sacrifice of Christ. It says that what was once for all was not once for all after all. Now, from chapter 7, the argument has been focused on a subject that, if grasped by the early Hebrew Christians, would stabilize them and their wavering faith in Christ. It would once and for all put to rest any temptation to give up Christ in favor of a retreat back into legalistic, ritualistic Judaism. If they got it, it would enable them to enjoy the full assurance of hope in Christ, which they were, some of them, lacking. The problem the author has faced is that for some time these Jewish Christians have gone lax, they have tired of persecution, and they've not been putting their faith in shoe leather. All that has combined to produce a certain spiritual inertia or lethargy, which he calls dullness of hearing, back at the end of chapter 5. These folks seem to have actually regressed in their spiritual understanding, for there's no way to stand still, I emphasize, in our walk with God. Either we progress or we regress. The trouble is, the doctrinal medicine that would be the best cure for their spiritual torpor, they're not in the best frame of mind to receive. It's sort of a catch-22. However, trusting in God to help him get through the internal obstacles, our author vowed in chapter 6 to forge ahead with his important teaching, which they must grasp, about the high priestly ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And by that we mean, the fact that he is in heaven, acting as a mediator for those of us who have received him. To expound this truth, our author had to explain to these Jewish believers the nature of Christ's priestly role. It was not after the order of Aaron, there was no provision for him, born of the tribe of Judah, to be a priest after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek. That was a subject unfamiliar to them, but it was one important for them to understand. So he forges ahead, and if they have tracked with him, they will understand these things. They will understand that the Levitical or Aaronic priesthood and its high priestly ministry so esteemed by the Jews under the Old Covenant, they will understand that it was merely temporary, that it was intended to be superseded by another priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, an eternal priesthood. Secondly, they would understand that this latter priesthood is that of Jesus Christ, and thirdly, they would understand that this priesthood, unlike that of Levi, is a perpetual priesthood, mediatorship, exercised in heaven itself, and therefore it's a mediatorial work in the very presence of God. It's one that transcends that which they had known on earth. And fourthly, if they tracked with him, they would understand that the Levitical priesthood, the earthly priesthood, was just a type, it was just a foreshadowing of this Melchizedekan priesthood. The earthly priesthood was not one that could bring us into the presence of God. It could only foreshadow symbolically heavenly things. Christ is superior in his person. He's superior in his order of priesthood. And in His offering. His offering is itself, not the blood of bulls and goats. So he's superior to all those mere types and shadows that prevailed under the Old Covenant. And in themselves they could not make anyone right with God. The only way anyone could be saved in the Old Testament was to be saved provisionally where the blood of Christ would later be applied to them retroactively. Well, in chapter 10, verses 1 to 18, the author continues his exposition of these general themes. He proceeds to show us that Jesus Christ is the source and the only ground of eternal salvation for those who trust in him. There can be no turning back. It is Christ or nothing. And let me just stop right there and apply that, not to a Jewish issue, but a contemporary issue, pluralism. The pluralists say it doesn't matter if God is there. It doesn't matter which way you go. All paths lead the same place. They absolutely do not. I've written a little book. You can find it on Amazon, The Finality of Christ, exploring the many roads to God myth. It's just a short little book. But if anybody is willing to let the Scripture arbitrate the issue, you can see that, as Jesus said, he is the way, he is the truth, and the life. There is one mediator between God and man. There must be a mediator. We've got a sin issue. You can't go any old way. There aren't nine gods. There is one God. And that God is the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's made it pretty clear, and it's pretty clear in Hebrews, that there is only one way to God. And that is through the sacrifice that God has provided. That sacrifice is the voluntary sacrifice of his son, and his son doubles as both the sacrifice and that high priest who can take, as it were, the blood of his offering into heaven itself, the true temple of God. And that blood satisfies the wrath of God and enables God in his love to embrace and receive all who trust in Jesus Christ. If you try to make an end run around the Lord Jesus Christ, you're on a fatal trip. It'll never work. So there's an application for any who may be tempted to pluralism. Now, he continues his argument in chapter 10. In verses 1 through 4, the author will once again draw attention, redundantly, to the inadequacy, more than inadequacy, the futility of the ritual system of the law or the old covenant to remove human defilement in the sight of God. It was all a symbolic system, that ritual system. It was ordained by God, but it was ordained to teach us ultimately that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. It was ordained to remind us that we are sinners, to remind us that to come before a holy God, we need defilement removed. But it was not the ultimate answer to that defilement. So he continues in chapter 10 to underscore that inadequacy for the law. And when it says the law, just think Old Covenant. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, not the very form of those things, the law can never, by the same sacrifices, he means those ritual sacrifices of bulls and goats, which they offer continually, it can never make perfect those who draw near. In other words, put them in a position of holiness where they have a righteousness, a perfect righteousness that is acceptable to God. Only under the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, where His righteousness is imputed to us, can that happen. It could not happen under that system. There are two big ideas in verse 1. The religious ritual worship of the Old Covenant consisted in shadows and symbols. He wants them to know that the substance of the redemptive benefits that were to come about in Christ and with the New Covenant did not exist back then. And two, he wants us to know that the system of ritual worship could not, by its very symbolic nature, perfect that is remove once and for all the defilement and the consciousness of that defilement from worshippers under that old system is a failed system. When I talk about shadows and substance, let me illustrate types and anotypes. on a sunny afternoon when we walk east, the sun casts a shadow of ourselves before us that shadow of ourselves has no substance. The essence of us is not in the shadow, though the shadow may illuminate certain distinct features of the substance that is to follow. As, for example, whether the substance is tall or short, a child or an adult, whether the substance is a male or female, the shadow does have a certain predictive capability. And in that way, the shadow is instructive. But the shadow cannot come to my aid nor assist me when I'm in trouble. Only the substance that follows can do that. So the law prescribed in the plan of God a religious system. We call it a cultus. It was a cultus of shadows. Those shadows pointed to the substance. The substance came with Christ. It pointed to the substance that was eventually to come. And Christ is the reality, and in Christ is true redemptive power. He continues in verse 2. Otherwise, if, and he means to say, if those ritual offerings had possessed... Redemptive power, wouldn't they have ceased to be offered? Because the worshiper, had they been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins, a sense of pollution or defilement that drives men to cringe in fear before a holy God and to hide from his presence. You see, there are two factors that keep sinful human beings from approaching God. One is the very holiness of God. That holiness would consume the unholy, sinful persons who would be so bold as to intrude into his presence. The second factor that keeps us from approaching God is our consciousness of the holy presence of God and our internal unfitness. We would shrink back in fear as did Adam and Eve when they sinned and hid from God in the garden. This is the facet of the sin issue that our author is most focused on. The blood of animals cannot relieve us of this sense of internal defilement that drives us from God and into the ways of death. A man cannot enjoy communion with God while a bad conscience still alarms the soul. So why would you want to go back to that system where you cannot be freed from that? Still, those sacrifices serve a purpose, though they do not remit sin. In those sacrifices, he says in verse 3, there is a reminder of sins. Year by year. Those ritual sacrifices under the old covenant sent a message. That the fundamental wedge, sin, transgression, and iniquity still stands between man and God. Those sacrifices served to remind those worshipers under the old covenant of the bad news and prod them to seek to rectify it. One might say that the big contrast between the old covenant and the new is that the old constantly reminds the worshiper that his sins and defilement are still there and the new reminds us that they are no more. In fact, his readers should have grasped what the psalmist said in Psalm 51.10 create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. For thou delightest not in sacrifice, else I would give it. Thou, God, hast no pleasure in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The psalmist is not saying that to ritualize worship of the old covenant which God himself ordained is in itself offensive to God. He is simply emphasizing that ceremonial offerings apart from a right and by a right spirit, a faithful spirit, well, they're null and void. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's not to say that no one under the Old Covenant was ever pardoned of sin. Rather, it's to say that it wasn't those ceremonial offerings per se which affected the atonement. Rather, all forgiveness in the Old Testament era was provisional. That means it was contingent upon genuine faith like that of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it was also contingent upon a future and true atonement of the great high priest who was to come, Jesus Christ. And that atonement would be applied retroactively on all believers in the Old Testament. For example, in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, Paul says God, quote, "...displayed Christ publicly as a propitiation or a satisfaction, an offering of satisfaction in his blood through faith." That was to demonstrate, Paul says, God's righteousness or justice, because in the forbearance of God, God passed over the sins previously committed, that is, under the Old Testament, when believers offered up merely ritual offerings that could not possibly take away sin or heal the conscience of defilement. To strengthen his point about the absolute necessity of a better atonement than that merely provisional or ceremonial cleansing afforded the worshipers under the Old Testament legal system. Our author once again appeals to their own Hebrew scriptures. He produces a passage from Psalm 46 through 8. This he interprets as a messianic prophecy. By that terminology, for those who don't know what it means, I mean that our author understands David's language, the writer of the psalm. As transcending the sentiments of David himself, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, our author discerns a voice of prophecy. And the Spirit so influenced the shape of David's language that it was elastic enough to go beyond himself and express in prophecy the heart of David's greater son, the Messiah. We'll pick that up next time. God bless you and have a wonderful day.
0: The Final Word is a listener-supported ministry. Should you want to partner with us or want other information about this program, please visit our website at thefinalwordradio.com. Our postal address is The Final Word. 4565 Carmen Drive Lake Oswego, Oregon 97035 Our email address is info at thefinalwordradio.com Our phone number is 503-699-9840 If this program has ministered to you tell a friend about it. We do solicit your prayers for God's hand upon this outreach. Thank you. Thank you. Be sure the work gets in their hand